was great to see our kids give a hand. And um, shout out and thank you to all of you who volunteered at Vacation Battle School this past week. Appreciate it so much. Hopefully you saw it is a valuable investment in kids' lives. Well, I don't know. How many of you ever gotten a tie for Father's Day and had the courage to wear it, right? So I, I kind of like my tie. They've been making fun of it all morning. I don't understand why. I think it brightens the room up, don't you? Well, you're nice anyway. It's Father's Day, and uh, we are here today to honor God who created men. Doesn't matter whether you're a father or not, single, married, doesn't matter. God created men. And when men choose to obey God, when men live the way God designed for men to live, everybody wins. Our marriages win, our kids win if we have families, our friends win. The church wins, the culture wins, the community wins, everybody wins when a man, single married father, doesn't matter, when a man seeks to be a man of God. Amen, all right? The opposite, the opposite is also true. The world loses when men don't measure up, when men don't seek to honor God and live by God's truth. Everybody loses as a result of that. And you know, I believe the enemy knows that, the enemy of our souls, Satan himself. And I believe that ever since Adam rebelled in the garden, he's had a war on men to this very day, to emasculate men, to minimize men. Because if he can do that, he gets control. And there are a lot of ways that he does it, and I just want to name or call out two ways that I see happening these days. One is certainly through the media. And uh, if you watch any amount of television, and especially if you watch uh, sitcoms, which are wildly popular, so many people watch them, just, just watch one if you can handle it, all right, and analyze how men are portrayed. They're oftentimes portrayed as overgrown adolescents who are morally irresponsible. And that's, that's kind of where they're left. The other way that men are attacked in our culture is that men are oftentimes ridiculed and shamed and guilted as though somehow, you know, we are to blame for all that is wrong in the world. Now, as a man, I will admit that much of the evil in the world lies at the feet of men. But what value is there if all we continue to do is to tell men that they are just simply overgrown adolescents or that they're to blame for everything that's wrong. I mean, what does that leave you with? It leaves you with a mindset in the culture that simply says, well, boys will be boys, let them be irresponsible, they can't do better than that. Or it ends up causing men to say, look, if all I'm gonna hear is how bad and how wrong I am, then I'm just gonna give up. I'm just not gonna even try to make a difference. Hence, men and their caves. Now, I know as soon as I say that, some of you thinking to yourself, are you gonna attack my man cave? Are you against my mantuary? All right, the answer to that question is no, I'm not down on man caves, mantuaries, whatever you wanna call them. But I am here to simply say this, that a man cave can be a really dangerous place or it can be a really good place. Now some of you are like, what in the world is a man cave? Like that's all, all new to me. Well, let me explain that, especially probably for the females who are here who may not appreciate the concept of man cave. 
A man cave is kind of a metaphor for a place inside or outside the house, it may be nothing more than a corner, that is free from feminine interference. Did you hear that? Free from feminine interference. It's where a man can dress the way the man wants to dress. The man can decorate it the way he wants to decorate it. A man can eat his favorite foods there, make his favorite noises there. Invite his favorite friends there. It's where a man can just be himself. And there's nothing wrong with that unless that man behaves badly in his man cave. Unless that man uses his man cave as a place to sulk and to run away from responsibility and run away from the world. Then a man cave is a very bad place, a dangerous place. But if a man cave becomes that place where I'm able to have fun, I'm able to relax and do it in a moral atmosphere, do it in a, in a good, wholesome atmosphere, if it's a place where I can get along with my God, if it's a place where I can decide I'm going to emerge from this frequently with moral courage in a culture that lacks it today, then a man cave is truly a beautiful thing. So what do you mean by moral courage, Pastor? I knew you'd be asking that question. So I want to invite you into the story of a man. You probably have never heard of him before. His name is Micaiah. And his story is found in 1 Kings chapter 22, so get your Bibles out. If you want to use the Bibles we provide, it's about page 512 or so, 512. Those of you joining us online, I'm glad you're here as well. I want to give a shout out to my grandchildren in Austria and Texas, if they're tuning in to watch Grandpa speak on Father's Day. All right, they gave you enough time to get there, right? Micaiah lived at a time when the history in Israel was just very, very bleak, very dark. The tribe of Israel to the north, the tribe of Israel to the south had separated in a civil war. And the northern tribes where Micaiah was, was ruled by a horrible and evil king by the name of Ahab. And coiled right next to him was his very wicked, if not more wicked, wife, whose name was Jezebel. How bad were they? First Kings chapter 21, verse 25 tells us. Says there was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. Really disgusting, bad people. Chapter 22 opens up and tells us that during this time, there had been no war for three years. Now, you would think no war for three years is a good thing. I mean, let's have peace. Let's not have a battle. Let's not have a war. However, if you're a despotic ruler, if you're an evil ruler like Ahab, you need a battle. The reason you need a war is because if you have too much time of peace, people begin to see you as the enemy because you're a cruel leader. You're an evil leader. So you have to have, you've got to pick a fight with somebody so that somebody else becomes the enemy. So all the energy is directed away. It's kind of a sadistic way of unifying the people around you. And that's what Ahab recognizes he needs to do. Now at the time, the king of Judah was visiting and his name was Jehoshaphat. And they were talking together in Samaria where Ahab had his capital. And Ahab said, you know something? I think we need to pick a fight with Aram, 
the king of Ramoth-Gilead. Because Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us. It's territory that is ours, and we need to take it back. And Jehoshaphat says, okay, I'm in with this with you. My soldiers will be your soldiers. My chariots will be your chariots. My horses will be your horses. We'll go as one man. However, Ahab, do you have some prophets you could talk to that we could ask if this is really what God wants? Because we don't want to go into battle if this isn't something God wants done. And Ahab says, sure, I've got 400 prophets that we can confer with. So Ahab calls together 400 of the prophets, and he says, should we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And in verse 6 of chapter 22, they respond, they say, go, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. I mean, they didn't take much of a meeting. All in favor, all believe that God wants the king to go to war and defeat the enemy and believe he'll have victory, say, aye, all 400, aye, let's go. We got to understand some politics going on there. The politics is simply this. Prophets tell the king what he wants to know, what he wants to hear. They give him the answer they know he wants to have. And Jehoshaphat knew that because he was a king. And so Jehoshaphat says, uh, Ahab, do you have anybody here, a prophet of God, who's not a yes man? That's in essence what he says. Somebody who's not afraid to speak the truth and and, and speak it to you as the king? No, you might expect that Ahab would say, hey, look, I just had 400 prophets say that it's okay to go. But Ahab's honest for maybe one of the first times in his life. And he says to him in verse 8, yeah, there is one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. Now, why do you think Ahab hates him? He says, I hate him because he never prophesies any good thing about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. And I guess to prove his point, Ahab said, I'll send for him. You see what I mean. So a messenger is dispatched to find Micaiah. And when he comes to Micaiah, he delivers him this message. He says to him in verse 15, excuse me, verse 13, look, The other prophets, that's 400, the other prophets, without an exception, are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. The pressure was on. In essence, what they're saying is, look, Micaiah, all 400 prophets have told the king to go. The king wants to go. When you show up, don't be a stick in the mud. Don't go the opposite direction. Tell him what he wants to hear. Comply with the rest of us. We have spoken for God. And the idea back then was that when a prophet spoke, he was speaking the word of God. So don't try to change God's word. Don't confuse everything. Don't create chaos. Don't make the king grumpy because then that's bad for all of us. Don't embarrass us. Don't embarrass yourself. Just go with the flow. It was a defining moment for Micaiah. I mean, to go against what the king wanted, a king like Ahab, was a dangerous thing. They could have your head for it, and Ahab was the kind of guy that would do it. Back in chapter 21, one day Ahab went to the owner of a vineyard next to the palace. The vineyard owner's name was Naboth. He said to Naboth, uh, I'd like to trade you for your land. I'll give you land somewhere else that you can have as a vineyard. 
or I'll uh, buy it outright from you. Naboth said, can't do it. See, this land has been passed down from generation to generation to generation. I can't let it go. I, I can't let you have it. And it made Ahab angry and upset. Didn't like being said no to. So he went home and he skipped dinner. You ever get upset, so mad that you won't eat? Any men ever had that happen to you? Kind of hard, isn't it, right? All right? But he skips dinner. That's how upset he is. And he puts his royal jammies on and he gets into bed. And he faces the wall and just stares at it. Well, his wife Jezebel came into the room. She said, what's going on? He said, well, I've got this situation. I went to Naboth, tried to buy it, tried to trade for it. He said, no. He said, it's in the family. He's not going to give it up. And she says, for Pete's sake, you're the king. Get up. Go get something to eat. Mama will take care of this. That's a paraphrase of the Hebrew. <laughs> and so she sends out a letter to the elders in the area where Naboth lived and said, call for a royal fast. And when you do, invite Naboth to be the guest of honor and find two scoundrels that will accuse him of cursing God and cursing the king. Take him out and stone him. So they did everything that Jezebel had written under Ahab's name. And when Naboth had been stoned and killed, she went back to her husband and she said, Honey, you know, the guy that was causing your troubles, he's dead. Go down there and claim your property. How'd you like to be married to a woman like that? Probably wouldn't sleep well at night, would you? That's the kind of people Micaiah's dealing with. And to go against the grain is literally to take his life into his own hands. Now, you may never face a situation like that that may cost you your life. And everybody in this room, male, female, young, old, all of us face pressure to comply with things that are not scriptural, they're not biblical, they're not values that God upholds. But I want to talk in particular to guys for just a moment. Men, you know what it's like. Those of you who work in a secular workplace especially, you understand there's a lot of pressure to comply with the company, to comply with the policies, to comply with making the deal, getting the sale, making the profits, even if you have to be dishonest about it. Even if you have to lie about it. Even if you have to cut corners. Even if it means some people get kind of run over on the way. It's kind of an expectation. It's what you do. It's how you get ahead. It's what capitalism is all about, some people say. How do you deal with that? I mean, to buck the system and to say, no, I won't do that, may cost you your job, may cost you promotion. You won't be seen as a team player. Sometimes you're even asked to present policies that you don't even agree with, that aren't, that aren't biblical, that are immoral. And to fail to do that, again, puts you on the sidelines. How about our, our students, How, especially our, our, our young men, when they go to school? What kind of pressure do they face from the professors, the teachers, from their coaches, from their peers. I, th I think about the pressure men are under in our culture, sexually speaking. It's enormous today. Whether you're single or married, but especially if you're single, it is, it is the, it's just the norm of the day to hook up with women. In the locker room to talk about your experiences, your escapades. And to talk about women in the most derogatory way. It's all about porn. It's all about... Money, it's all about the abuse of alcohol, it's all about drugs, it's all about having a good time. And you're expected to swim in the same lane, you're expected to be in the same pool, to go in the same direction with everybody else. If you don't do that, if you speak against it, if you don't participate in it, you're seen as being really odd. 
And people take it as though you're condemning them, and that's what makes them angry about it. Because it feels like because you don't do it, you're being judgmental toward them. And sometimes it costs your friendship. Sometimes it means loneliness. Sometimes it means being left out. Because you don't fit in. Sometimes we get it from our spouses. Sometimes we get it from our kids. Why don't we go there? Why can't I hang out with those people? Why can't I do those kinds of things? Why can't we be this kind of family? Why can't we drive that car? Why can't we live in that kind of house? Why, why, why? A thousand voices come screaming at us, especially as men, from every direction, young, old, single, married, doesn't matter, to conform and to comply with the culture, religiously, politically. We even face pressure from preachers, from authors, from seminaries that want to rewrite the Bible to get it in compliance with where the culture is going so we're not left behind and so we don't stand out as being truly odd and different. I mean, come on, is this really all truth? Aren't there some myths and legends in here? Isn't the morality in this book a little bit outdated? Don't we need to update the morality to kind of fit where the culture is today? Doesn't Jesus need to be reinvented? He needed to be Jesus for the people that he lived with at that time, but he's a different Jesus today. We've decided what Jesus that's going to be. Aren't there many ways to heaven? It doesn't have to just be one way. And on the list goes. And sometimes it's easy for us guys to hear that, read it, pick it up, listen to it, and go, yep, that, makes, that works for me. That makes sense to me. That allows me to kind of be in the flow. Well, a lot of pressure. How is Micaiah going to handle the pressure? That might cost him his life. Well, here's how he responds to the messenger in verse 14. He said, as surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. I want to applaud Micaiah at that point. You go, Micaiah. You're my man. What an example you are. It doesn't matter what 400 say. It doesn't matter what the king says. It doesn't matter what the culture says. You are only going to say what God gives you. However... It is easy to say that. It's another thing to do it. It's easy to say something. It's another thing to act. And I've known men who in church will make the most profound declarative statements of following God and living by the truth. But when they go to work Monday, it's a different world. They're like a different person. I've known men that have told their wives, their children, how they ought to live, how they ought to be, how much they love God, how they want to do what is right. And as soon as they leave their spouse, as soon as they leave their family, well... They live almost a different life. It's one thing to say it. Are you willing to back up your words with actions? That's the question for Micaiah. And when you first read what happens, it doesn't look good. He shows up and the king asks him in verse 15, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or not? Micaiah answers and he says, attack and be victorious, for the Lord will give it unto the king's hand. And I'm like, oh no! Micaiah! You're supposed to back up what you say, how you're telling him to do. You're agreeing with the prophets. But this is one reason I hope there's DVDs in heaven or something. I want to see this scene because obviously the way Micaiah said it was so sarcastic that the king knew that's not really what he meant. He said, how do you know that? Listen to what he says in verse 16. Ahab, the king said, how many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? In other words, Micaiah, I know you're not being truthful with me right now. I know you're messing with me right now. 
Shoot straight with me, man. And so Micaiah does. Verse 17, he says, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. In other words, you're going to go to battle. You're going to die. Shepherd's gone. You're supposed to be leading them. You're going to die, and they're going to scatter. Now look at his answer, King Ahab, in verse 18. I can see him kind of looking at Jehoshaphat, and he says, didn't I tell you that he never prophesied any good thing about me, only bad? And Micaiah says, let me tell you a little story, king. I saw, I saw a scene in heaven. God was seated on his throne. There was a multitude surrounding him. And he asked a question. He said, what, what will it take to get Ahab to go into battle to meet his demise because he's been so wicked? And all kinds of suggestions were being given to the Lord. And one spirit said to the Lord, um, here's what will work. I'll go down and I'll put a lying tongue in the mouths of the prophets. They'll tell Ahab to go. He'll believe them. He'll go and he'll die. And God said, that'll work, do it. Well, there was one of the 400 prophets there who happened to be hearing all of this. His name was Zedekiah. And it so angered him when he heard Micaiah say that, that he walked over to Micaiah and he slapped him in the face. He said, who do you think you are? Does the Spirit of God speak through me and then go to you and speak something else? There are 400 of us, one of you. Who do you think is right? Ahab has Micaiah arrested, taken back to his home, put in jail without food or water until Ahab comes back. Ahab looks at Jehoshaphat and he says to him, let's go to battle. But here's the kind of coward Ahab was and the kind of fool Jehoshaphat was. Ahab said, I'm going to go into battle, but I'm going to dress incognito. I'm just going to go as a regular soldier with regular armor. You go with your royal robes. In other words, you be, you be a sitting duck target. <laughs> You stand out. Let them shoot at you. And Jehoshaphat's foolish enough to say, okay, uh-huh, I will. And so they go in the battle in their chariots. Jehoshaphat in his royal robes, Ahab incognito. King Aram says to 32 of his commanders in the chariots, when you go to battle, please don't, don't fight with the common soldiers. Look for the king. You can't miss him. He'll be in his beautiful robes. Take the king out and the soldiers will scatter because there'll be no leadership. So here's Jehoshaphat in his robes, beautiful red, had a nice tie like this, going out in the chariot. There are the 32 commanders, they see him, he just sticks out. And they come for him, and it says that he screamed. Doesn't say what he said, I imagine he said, I'm not Ahab, I'm Jehoshaphat, wrong guy. And they turn the corner. But a common soldier, drew back his bow, let an arrow go, and it says the arrow found its way between the sections of Ahab's armor and pierced him with a mortal wound. And he bled to death in his chariot. And the soldiers of Israel scattered. And the battle was over. Ahab's body was taken to Samaria. He was buried there. The blood and the chariot was washed out by the pools where the prostitutes gathered, a fitting place for a man who had prostituted Israel to all kinds of false gods. And the story ends. So what's the moral of that whole story? The moral of that whole story is to have moral courage means that you listen to the right voice and then you act on that voice. 
Moral courage is hearing the one true voice and saying, no matter what everybody else says, what everybody else does, I will listen to that voice, I will speak what that voice says, and I will behave according to that voice. You ever heard that saying, um, someone may use it like this, wow, he marches to a beat of a different drum. Ah, she marches to a beat of a different drummer. You ever heard that? You know, that's credited to Henry David Thoreau. And the original quote goes like this. If a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. Let him step to the music which he hears, however measured or far away. The drumbeat of the culture where the 400 prophets and the king and everybody else who was saying, let's go to war, this is what God wants. Micaiah is marching the other way and it appears that he's out of step with everybody. Because he's saying, God says, you go to war, you're going to die. And the consequences of him saying, that may mean that he dies but he would rather march to the beat of God that seems out of step with the beat of everybody else than to go with the flow. You and I live in a culture that is marching to the beat of ungodliness, to the beat of all kinds of lies. We're we are living in a culture that is marching to the heartbeat of secularism and for you as a believer especially as a man to walk by and live by God's truth makes it look like you are out of step and our mental propensity is to always believe that the majority are right but if you study the Bible carefully you will soon realize the majority are seldom right And are often wrong. That's why there's always a remnant in the scripture that are faithful to God. And a remnant who are faithful to God today. And I have a choice. I can go with the majority opinion or I can march with the remnant of God's faithful. And be willing to pay the price that goes with that. Whose beat are you marching to? And by the way, let me, let me just say this uh, as, a, as a word of caution, because some of you guys are contrarians by nature. You're just happy to march to a different beat, just in your nature. And you're like, yeah, I'm willing to take a stand for the truth. I'm not ashamed to do it. Be careful that, that what you perceive to be truth is really God's truth and not your personal opinion. And be careful you don't confuse conservatism with truth because conservatism is not always truth just as progressiveness is not always truth just like the right is not always truth just like the left is not always truth the only way to know what truth is is to make sure that the central feature in your man cave is the word of God and to eat the word of God as though it were a steak <laughs> devour it yeah last service they had the sliders they're cooking out there, they had the vent close to the intake system, and this room was just smelling good. I had to stop the message to let guys finish drooling, and I'm sure that created a longer line out there. They moved it since then, because it would be dangerous in this service. 
I'll be walking out right now. But you know, it, it, it was smelled good. It, it made me hungry. It caused me to salivate, smelling that meat cook. We're supposed to salivate for the word of God. We're supposed to hunger for this word. So it becomes the compass that guides and directs our life. It becomes the course by which we live by, guys. What are you living your life by, man? What are you leading your, those of you who are married, what are you leading your marriage by? What are you leading your kids by? You single men, what are you leading your life by? If you're gonna get married someday, and not all singles choose to get married, how are you going to, how are you gonna decide who you are going to marry? If you're gonna stay single, how are you gonna stay single and morally so in an immorally irresponsible world? How are you gonna guide your business? How are you gonna make your financial decisions? How are you gonna know when the culture's wrong and how are you gonna know what is right? You can't go by opinion, you can't go by hearing a preacher, you gotta get the word in your soul. That's what you gotta live by. You gotta march to the beat of this drum. My mentor, Hen Robinson, speaking of this passage, tells the story of Hugh Latimer, who was a 16th century priest. He was part of the Reformation. He moved away from you know, the, the Catholic Church, which had become corrupt at that point. And one day, he was a great preacher, he was called to give a sermon in front of King Henry VIII. Do you know your history? King Henry VIII was not a Sunday school boy. He was as wicked as Ahab ever was. It is said there was a woman he lusted after that he didn't take, a man he didn't hate that he didn't have killed. And Hugh Latimer has to give a sermon in front of the king that he knows the king is not going to like. It is nothing for Henry to decide to have somebody's head taken off. Like he can do that and go have dessert and not think about it again. If you're Hugh Latimer, kind of like Micaiah, and you know you've got to deliver a message that is not going to be popular with the king, that's going to call out his sin, sins, what are you going to do? Because it's almost like 100% you're going to die. So Hugh Latimer showed up before Henry VIII and before the entire court to give his sermon. And we have, we have that sermon. And I want to read to you some excerpts. I want to read to you the introduction to Latimer's sermon. I'd be shaking in my boots. Here's how he started out. Latimer, Latimer, do you remember that you are speaking before the high and mighty King Henry VIII, who has power to command you to be sent to prison, who can have your head cut off if it please him? Will you not take care to say nothing that will offend royal ears? Pause. Latimer, Latimer, he said, do you not remember that you are speaking before the King of kings and Lord of lords, before him at whose throne Henry VIII will stand, before him to whom one day you will have to give an account yourself? Latimer, Latimer, be faithful to your master and declare all of God's word. And he did. And you know what? Henry VIII was so impressed by a man who believed his convictions, they would risk his life for them, that he didn't have his head because he respected him. <laughs> now, the sad news is later on, Henry's daughter, known as Bloody Mary, has Latimer burned at the stake for refusing to obey her. 
But the point is, it didn't matter what the circumstances were, he was going to do the right thing. Guys, can I tell you something? The people that matter to you, they're waiting for you. They're watching to see if you will be a man of moral courage because they need it. Husbands, your wives want you to be a man of moral courage. And even though your kids complain and tell you that you're old-fashioned and all the kinds of stuff that goes with it, deep down inside, they want you to be a man of moral courage. They need that example. You single men who think someday that you want to be married, I'm telling you, if you want to find a good woman, be a man of moral courage because that's what she's looking for. You want to make an influence on your peers and your friends around you? Be a man of moral courage. Whether you're a teenager, whether you're a young boy, whether you're a young adult, it doesn't matter what age you are. Choose today to be a man of moral courage, to march to one drumbeat, the drumbeat of God and his word. Let's pray. Father God, we humble ourselves before you, especially as men today, oh God. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to quicken our minds and our attention right now away from all the details and all the plans this afternoon to this sacred moment. You are calling us, oh God, to step out and to be men of moral courage. God, I pray that you would help us to take that stand. For some of us, Lord, it's a way of saying, I will continue. For others of us, Lord, we've been, we've been messing around in our man cave. We've been playing at it, Lord. It's just... We've not been serious, and today we want to be serious. First, to glorify you, and secondly, so we can influence the people you've placed around us. God, we admit we're sinners. We admit we're weak. We admit we, we start and we fail, but God, I thank you that you don't give up on us, that you love us, you forgive us, you give us a chance time and time and time again. I need it. I thank you for it. And God, I imagine most of these men need it and thankful for it. I thank you that you're a God who loves us. Even when we fail, and some of us, Lord, have failed miserably, you still love us. You still love us. You still forgive us. Help us stop listening to the enemy who keeps trying to convince us we're worthless, we're hopeless. We're just boys being boys. God, I pray in this room this morning, Call out men to live lives of moral courage. In a moment, we're all going to stand. I'm going to ask you not to leave. And the, Colin and the team are going to lead us in song. And I want to issue a challenge to all the men who are here to come forward if you're willing to continue or willing to say, I will be a man of courage. And present yourself not to me, present yourself to God. See, I'm uncomfortable stepping out. Well, that's between you and God. I challenge you to have the courage to do it. If you're in the balcony, there'll be plenty of time to make it here to the front if you want. Or in the balcony, just come to the rails. Present yourself to the rails to God. When you come down the aisleways, please filter in next to the deck here so there's room in the middle. And then guys that come in a little bit later will be able to fill up in the middle. But as soon as we start to sing, guys, you come up and present yourself to God and say, God, I want to be a Micaiah. I want to be a Latimer. I want to be a man of courage. Let's all stand together. I'll see you down front.